1: which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including... Zero tariffs and zero quotas. There
2: is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar.
3: I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling no deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon.
2: I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we're going to be looking at Brexit in various forms, not least how it affects Ireland. But the first thing was that the headline overnight was the UK Brexit negotiator David Frost launching an unprecedented attack on the EU's conditions for a deal.
3: So each side is taking the strongest possible position ahead of talks in March. Frost dismissing Brussels' position that Britain should abide by EU rules as part of any trade deal. That, of course, is where the fight lies. He told an audience in Brussels that it simply fails to see the point of what we're doing. Quite the uphill battle he had in a Brussels university trying to make the case, really, for Brexit and for his form of Brexit. That comes, of course, after France's Foreign Minister, Jean-Yves Lutrien, this weekend warned that the talks would be brutal. One thing I was struck by a line in the speech, he said, in particular, I'm clear that I'm negotiating on behalf of Northern Ireland as every part of the UK. So he really struck that out as, as a particular point he wanted to make.
2: Because, of course, for Northern Ireland, this is a very, very important and, let's say, difficult process. Joining us now, I'm very pleased to say here on Bloomberg Westminster, Stephen Ferry, MP for the Alliance Party, indeed the party's only MP at Westminster. Uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, sir. Um, We were talking there about the Brexit negotiations. Now, Northern Ireland has a particular problem in this. We have, in fact, a kind of two-border situation, one that seems to be running down the Irish Sea uh, and one that runs across the border between the six counties and the rest of the island of Ireland. Do you see in the way that that, that Westminster is currently negotiating with Brussels on this any hope really for Northern Ireland?
1: Well, things are going to be very difficult for us um, in Northern Ireland. I mean, essentially, Northern Ireland is still a divided society and a contested space, which is why we have the Good Friday Agreement. It's very important that we have those relationships within the UK but also on the island of Ireland and that we have that um, interdependence um, recognised. That's the only way in which our society can work. The difficulty is any form of Brexit entails some degree of a boundary, a barrier, and and friction, and that creates a perception of winners and losers. So wherever you draw that line on a map, there will be difficulties. Now, the the Theresa May version of the deal was a much softer landing for Northern Ireland. The Boris Johnson deal uh, is a much um, more challenging um, proposition. And in essence, what has happened is that the what would have otherwise been the, the, the boundary between the European Union and Northern Ireland as part of the UK uh, has essentially been pushed back uh, to the Sea, uh, and that in itself is now going to create some difficulties for uh, particularly our, our economy.
3: Do you think it's made a united Ireland more likely? I say that also looking at the Sinn Féin hmm. performance in the election in the South last week.
1: Week. Um, n- n- not immediately, but we are in a, in a much more uncertain um, s- situation. Um, in mean, Northern Ireland, uh, with the with the Good Friday Agreement, has had twenty years of relative stability. I mean, there has been some challenges. Um, however, the constitutional question was largely largely parked. Now Brexit has uh, reopened that uh, f- uh, for sure. Um, there's no immediate uh, prospect of change, uh, but we are in a much more fluid um, s- situation. So, would
2: you favour a border referendum at this stage?
1: Not not, not at this point of don't think, don't think the case is, is there for it and, and our focus as a party is, is bringing Northern Ireland together and wherever you draw the line on the map that's what you have to do but without doubt the, the, the issue of the constitution is on the agenda in a way it hasn't been. Now Sinn Féin's uh, success in the south, uh, south of Ireland in, in uh, the, the elections last weekend are uh, more a reflection of domestic politics there frustrations around health and the housing but as a byproduct of their increased influence uh, at the very right, least preparations for change uh, on the island will rise up the, the agenda and uh All of us will have to engage in that in some uh, evidence-based, constructive way. So,
2: Stephen, I mean, you're back, your party is back in uh, Stormont with with the rest. Um, You're dealing, I guess, with the the DUP on a daily basis. Are you detecting, as some people claim to do, a changing attitude in the unionist community, possibly with a, a rather different attitude towards Dublin, perhaps warming to greater cooperation? What do you think?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't mistake that for any any change in terms of their unionist credentials. Um, they're not going to be entertaining any change on 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 the island in the constitutional sense. But change may happen over their heads, and, and that's something they do have to uh, to to to, to recognise. I think what, what I. Think The DUP in particular have made an historic mistake in relation to to Brexit. Um, Brexit has uh, destabilised the union from their their perspective, but yet they backed Brexit, and indeed they backed a very hard-line version uh, of Brexit. So that was a a reckless proposition in in the extreme, and they ended up then with, with Boris Johnson essentially betraying them in terms of some of the promises that had been made. So they're now trying to find some way of managing some of the forces that they themselves have helped to unleash.
3: And uh, Stephen, you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement. I uh, wonder whether there is now uh, potentially, and I'd be interested to hear what you think of this, a, a threat to, to peace in Northern Ireland. And I say that based on the comments we saw yesterday from David Frost. He talked about a lack of alignment, and that's something they keep saying again and again. That's clearly not something that the UK government is likely to move on. Um, and we look at this in the context of the border between the EU the EU, and the uh, and the UK being between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland.
1: Well, I I think the more the UK diverges from the European Union, or in other words the harder the version of Brexit that we have the greater the implications for that border down down the Sea. but conversely even if we have the most softest Brexit possible, uh, because the UK is outside the European Union there will still be some degree of border checks so there's no way we we can escape that. Uh, I think what we're going to see is uh, increased uh, dysfunction in Northern Ireland. Uh, It it will make both our economy and our politics uh, that much more difficult. I wouldn't uh, suspect that we're going to see an increase in the, le- in the level of violence because for, for most people who were engaged in that those activities uh, ro- very wrongly o- over the past uh, they do know that, that they're, n- they're not effective. That said, we do have a, a small number of dissident Republicans um, who will seek to exploit anything they can and that threat remains um, severe and, and persistent. Well let, and-
2: me, let me drill down into what that dysfunction you're talking about because it is interesting we, we did see of course uh, uh, a very strong showing by Sinn Féin in the South, formerly uh, the the political wing of the IRA, though the leader of Sinn Féin has very much even more distanced herself from uh, people who cling to the idea of, of, of violence. But nonetheless, we have seen it in reasonably recent times, not least, of course, in the killing of Lyra McKee, uh, for whom someone is, is has been charged. Um, is there not a risk that the violence could resume if people f- feel dissatisfied economically as well as politically with what comes out of all this?
1: Well, th- th- there's always a risk, and, and, and nothing can ever be taken for granted, uh, and we can't be. Compl- pleasant around these things um, but I, I think it is fair to say that um, Sinn Féin and uh, the, the broader republican movement are committed um, to uh, the peace process that this this has been a feature for the, uh, the best part of, of 25 uh, years now. That said I mean sometimes they, they will hark back to uh, the, the, the previous days and, and, and make some very irresponsible comments which themselves uh, create uh, tensions in our society but the problem that we have now is what we call the Dissident Republicans uh, which were breakaways from the IRA um, back in the 1990s Uh, they're small in number uh, but they have the ability to create uh, enormous damage and Larry McKee's murder was one uh, example of that but we've had attacks on police officers um, and and other um, people working on on behalf of the state uh, over the past number of years and and those threats are ongoing and indeed over the past 24 hours uh, threats have been issued to Sinn Féin um, directly uh, from the Dissidents. Um, so uh, that's, again, uh, rationing up uh, tensions. So people will seek to exploit uh, any tensions and difficulties that exist in, in society. Uh, and while there will be dysfunction, most people know that violence gets us nowhere.
3: And you mentioned the likelihood of increased economic dysfunction as well. How do you see that playing out?
1: Well, we, Northern Ireland is in that position where we... <laughs> Depend upon both the Republic of Ireland and the European Union and the rest of the UK, both in terms of sales and also supply chains, and if we see some degree of friction being created, particularly down the Irish Sea, as it now looks likely, that's going to interfere with that um the, there could be some situations where northern ireland could actually have a foot in both the european union and the uk last thing is currently standard there's, there's perhaps a greater risk that we could end up being peripheral uh, if we're trying to explain our economy and how we're partially in the in the eu and partially in the uk at times that could come across as very complicated to people looking to invest, and that may put people off. So th- this could fall either way uh, for us, but at this stage, um, I think we're more concerned than hopeful.
2: What about you, Stephen? Because I mean, you're, you are the only Alliance MP in the House in Westminster. I mean, is, is, do, you, do you not feel perhaps slightly dysfunctional? I mean, what, what can you actually do concretely in that situation?
1: Well, I, I'm in the position where I, I can build alliances and, and, and speak to, to parties um, right, right across the chamber and try to work through um, s- solutions. Um, obviously, what has now changed is the, the very large um, majority for the Conservative Party in contrast to, to the previous party uh, parliament and they can put through at the stage anything uh, they wish. So in terms of numbers, uh, none of the opposition MPs have the ability to change outcomes. What we do have is the, is the force of, of argument, and something I'm very keen to stress, I mean, Boris Johnson's talk about uh, he wants to be a one-nation Tory. Uh, well, that can't be one nation being England. England he has to recognise the UK consists of, four, consists of four nations, including Northern Ireland, and Brexit will have different impacts for different parts of the UK. And if those aren't factored in uh, to UK politics, Policy going forward then he is going to end up pushing Scotland and Northern Ireland out of the out of the, the the out of the UK so that is very much the the choice he has to make and that's those are the arguments we will be making to them in terms of making sure that Northern Ireland's interests are properly taken into account
2: who do you ally with which, which, which parties briefly would you work with in, in Parliament?
1: Well, um, it's, a, it's a range of alliances. Um, we're a sister party of the Liberal Democrats within uh, the, the European uh, Liberal Movement and, and the, uh, Liberal International, so we have good links uh, with, with them. I would also work very closely with the SDLP, who will be uh, also fellow re- remainers uh, in terms of Northern Ireland. And uh, but indeed, Labour and SNP that will be common cause with, with, with all of them. So, uh, and there's even some Tories I've, I've, I've long-standing uh, uh, relationships right. with as well.
0: Thank you.
3: Let's have a look at the other stories making news in the world of politics. We've got to start with what is making a lot of splashes today. It's this advisor, Andrew Sabinski, who's resigned after, I think you can call it a media furore. Uh, the outrage over the remarks he's made about things like unplanned pregnancies um, and black people and women and all sorts of things. He uh, once suggested black Americans have a lower IQ on average than white citizens. Uh, he was appointed when the Prime Minister's senior aide advertised for weirdos, remember that, to apply for jobs at number 10. Uh, And this is what they ended up with. We've had uh, business minister Kwasi Kwarteng saying that Sabinski jumped before he was pushed.
2: I've read them now and I've said they were racist and I've said that his remarks were offensive and obviously we can't have these people with those kind of views operating at the heart of government. Sabisky, I think, rather than Sabinsky. We must make sure at least he gets his name right. Uh, Whatever else. Now, UK jobs. Well, the economy has added 180,000 jobs in the fourth quarter, leaving the jobless rate at a four-decade low of 3.8%. Now, according to the Office for National Statistics, vacancies rose by 7,000 in the three months up to January, and employment in the fourth quarter hit a record high, driven by full-time employees. Now, earnings, including bonuses, did slow in the fourth quarter, just 2.9% growth. But it is still outpacing inflation.
3: And then the budget is going ahead as planned on the 11th of March. That's according to the new Chancellor, Rishi Sunaki, confirmed the date on Twitter. There, of course, had been a bit of speculation about a delay, possibly. That was after Sajid Javid quit suddenly last week. But Sunak says he's cracking on with preparations.
2: Right. Well, let's now go to Matt Bevington, who's a policy researcher at the UK in a changing Europe group. Matt, good afternoon to you. Thanks for being with us. Um, Let's uh, first of all think about that speech. David Frost really was uh, putting out something, I think, perhaps deliberately provocative. If one sees this as theatre, it was certainly a rather dramatic opening scene. But should we take the line that UK will not abide by EU rules seriously?
4: Well, I think, yes, in the sense that I can't see the UK signing up to um, EU rules wholesale, as in on, on state aid rules in particular, that the UK will just adopt those rules and have the European court oversee it. Where there is a bit of room, I think, is on, is on what, what is called non-regression on these, on these things. So the UK maintains its current standards, and the EU agrees to do the same. That's the sort of thing where I can see the UK signing up to it. It's all about wording in the end. I think it will be packaging that's really the crucial thing. But no, I think there is a principle there about not signing up the EU rules wholesale. And I think that was a genuine message, not just not just uh, not just theater.
3: And what about the risk of no deal? We heard from Frost yesterday. He said at the end of this year, we'll recover our, as he puts it, political and economic independence in full. He asks, why would we postpone it? So it seems that the uh, the argument is there that this is the point of Brexit. With that in mind, is that making things more likely that whatever happens, we're going to come out of the transition period at the end of next year?
4: yeah i think i think we'll de- certainly leave the, the transition period on current terms whether they manage to reach some sort of fudge arrangement to roll over some arrangements that's unclear the important thing from what he said yesterday was really that the, the uk you know is not he's <laughs> not going to get get into this really long term negotiation with the eu in in this phase what i would what i would sort of point towards i think is the, the uk trying trying to find some sort of position in the end I mean it's unclear whether whether there is political space to do that here but I mean the message was, was quite clear that the, the, this transition period will end and I think that's true but we're far too early in the process the important sort of indications will come in a couple of weeks time whether the two sides can actually agree whether they have a basis for negotiation I think that's the first step we need to get to whether, before we start thinking about whether we reach no deal or not and if the UK and the EU can sort of agree well yes we're negotiating a similar sort of framework then that will be an indication that we're heading towards a deal. And we should know that fairly quickly, I would say, within the next month or so. That will be key.
2: Yeah, we are getting word, in fact, that the opening round of the talks will take place in Brussels in the first week of March and EU leaders will sign off the mandate in the coming week. Uh, Talks will alternate between here and London, apparently, on a three-week cycle between both. I doubt they will cycle. But um, I I suppose the thing with this, Matt, is in the end, is there not an element of what one of our commentators called game theory? Because... Each side actually does need a solution. It doesn't really help either side to walk away from this with no deal.
4: Yes, I mean, there certainly is a degree of that. But I think I think there is thinking on the EU side amongst some that when we get to a no deal situation that their position improves relative to the UK and actually then they're, they're, they're in a, position, a, a stronger position than they are now. Whether that is true or not remains to be seen and it's quite a high risk position to take. But certainly some people do think that. On the UK side as well, there's a sense that, well, whatever happens, we can manage. So um, no deal is not necessarily something we should fear entirely, especially where we are in the political cycle in the UK. I think Boris Johnson feels like he probably has some space, even if if there is some disruption. And actually, in a way, some disruption on the UK side is evidence for the UK public that, yes, things are changing. He said he was going to deliver on Brexit, and he is doing. And yes, it's slightly painful to begin with, but it's different. And so I can see that there's a political case... On both sides, where No Deal can can be used to their benefit. So I think there's there's two sides to this. You know, No Deal is not, it, of course, economically damaging, but politically can be useful for for both sides.
3: Do you think the political capital is there on the UK side if disruption does start to occur to be able to tell the country, look, this is all part of what you signed up for, especially given the rhetoric coming from the government that Brexit is now, as they put it, done.
4: You, you know, it it comes really down to divisions in society that, that have been here all, all throughout really. I mean for the for the leave voters, yes, it's something they're willing to put up with. The question is whether the remain side are as willing to put up with it probably not. Um, but I think ultimately one thing that's happened throughout the brexit process is we've been in a fairly benign economic environment. as you were just mentioning, jobs numbers are pretty good, the economy's rolling on reasonably well if not if not altogether impressively. So I think if we start to see unemployment rising, job losses businesses closing, that sort of thing, that really can change the political context and the political debate. And in that context, maybe the prime minister makes a different decision. But I think, yeah, in the short term, in the very short term, at least, the after no deal, he probably feels he can ride it out and, and, and explain it to the public as something that they, they ultimately voted for.
2: But do you get the impression that Europe wants, I mean, you mentioned that their, their sense that perhaps they'd be all right along the way, they'd manage, but the, the sheer volume of trade between the UK and the EU surely means that's an unsustainable position. There has to be something to oil the wheels, because as you say, although economics in general, perhaps not so bad with things like the, the coronavirus around, there's a strong potential for mega problems in the global economy. And you don't want to be caught in a difficult position at that point.
4: No, sure. I mean, the, the EU side are always clear that they want a deal, and I think they think long-term that it wouldn't be sustainable to have no deal. But as I say, I think in the short term, they some people think that would improve their leverage over the UK and that they could better handle the short term of that than the, than the UK side. I'm not so sure about that just from a political perspective in the sense that Um, As I was saying, Boris Johnson can probably sell that a bit better. Whereas disruption on the EU side, it's much more fragmented politically, obviously, given there are 27 different countries. But you know, it's really difficult to to say how it would play out at the time. But you know, I can see the, the calculations on both sides really.
3: Now, one of the things that was notable, I think, about the speech yesterday was how highly philosophical it was. It really was sort of ideological in its approach to try and convince people who may be opposed to Brexit that it is a good idea. One of the lines that Frost put ahead was about independence. He says it's not about a limited degree of freedom in return for accepting some of the norms of the central power. He says it means independence, just that. But an argument that has been bandied around since Brexit first became a discussion topic was that when you go into some sort of free trade agreement, as we, we will have to do, it always involves something. sort of pooling of sovereignty so does this argument necessarily stack up
4: yeah i mean as you say you know any agreement any international treaty whether it's trade or otherwise is about mutual restraint you each give up something in order to have a bit more control over the other partner um i think what he's really pointing out is that there are degrees of control and degrees of mutual restraint um and that the uk yeah is willing to sign up for a little bit of that but not to the extent that the eu is and that's really where they're on different pages entirely the uk would be reasonably happy with the Canadian-style situation where it's about maintaining a floor on standards rather than dynamic alignment, as people talk about. But the EU, particularly when it comes to state aid, is talking about uh, dynamic alignment, UK adopting EU rules, and also the UK having a monitoring authority set up to to, to manage that as well. So it, it's really... there is There are differences of degree here. It's not just a case of not accepting any kind of external controls at all. Of course, that will happen... I think the government does recognise that. It's about the extent to which that happens.
2: And, Matt, one of the things I find hard, we've heard talk about equivalence, that, okay, we may not be uh, actually on the same rules, but but if we have equivalent rules, that will do for a while. But where is it that the rule changes, do you think, are likely to come? Is it to do with perhaps loosening uh, the the, the ties on, on the activities of financials, for example? Or is it about changing agricultural rules? Where do you think these changes are likely to be?
4: Well, I mean, certainly there have been indications on the agricultural side that the UK wants to change the way that it, it funds the agricultural sector. That's one of them. But, I mean, Mr. Frost was really pointing towards uh, the sort of new sectors that are that may at this stage be either unregulated or under-regulated, and that's really where the gains can be made. I don't think he was talking necessarily about diverging massively from the EU in terms of existing heavily regulated sectors. It's more to do with probably on the digital side, well, that in, in, interacts with, with financial services and digital economy. Those those kinds of things are where I think they see the benefits of being, not necessarily in, in the sort of traditional sectors.
2: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB digital radio in London.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state